This is an interview on Sunday, January 31st, 2021, with man dancing guitarist Ben Petty by Nick Perkel. Now, Ben, can you tell me about getting your very first guitar? Absolutely. And thanks for having me on the show, Nick. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Um, the first guitar was a knockoff Fender Stratocaster that was my father's. It was the kind with like the, you know, like the black and white pick guard configuration, that classic Fender Stratocaster look. That was the first guitar I ever had. I inherited it from my dad. Not that he, my, my dad is still, he's still with us. I inherited it. You know, he just, he just gave it. Um, so that was, that was the first guitar that I ever had. Tell me about the guitar you're using now for your band. Um, currently I use, it is, and pardon my ignorance, like on the gear front, um, it's an Ibanez. I believe it's like an ART 420 or something. It's like, I think it's actually a jazz guitar, um, from a line that they were making maybe 10 or so years ago. Um, I, I just, I picked it cause it gets really nice clean tones and has like a lot of tone options and it's got a shiny gold finish. I enjoy. And it also matches my glasses. Now, when you were younger, were you involved in any music classes or did you use any private tutors to advance yourself as a musician? Yes. Sorry. So, um, when I, yeah, when I, um, I started off with uh, piano and piano lessons. Um, and the first rock instrument that I picked up was the bass. Um, and I actually, and I still play bass as well in a band. Um, I'm not an official member of the, of this band, Brother Moses, but I, I uh, like, I play, I do some tours with them and some gigs with them and stuff. I play, still play bass in Brother Moses. Um, so yeah, bass and piano were how I started. And I did take lessons for both. Um, I, I, I often think that if my, um, my childhood bass teacher were to come to find out that I'm actually still, not only still playing, but actively pursuing music as a career, he would be astonished because I really wasn't like a heck of a student. You know, I would come in every week and he'd be like, Hey, so like, what do you want to learn this week? And I just had this one X Games CD in my bass bag. And I was just like, I don't know the X Games CD. And we just like pick a different song <laughs> off the same fucking CD that I would bring every week. So he probably didn't think I was really very motivated or driven. So I think he'd be very surprised to see that I'm still with it. How far back do you and your bandmates in man dancing go? And were any of you involved in any previous bands together? So actually me and Steve, who's the singer of man dancing, we uh, recently celebrated our, I believe it's six year anniversary of knowing each other. Uh, we can track it down to the day because we played a gig together, you know, obviously we didn't know each other. We played a big uh, gig together in a New Brunswick basement, uh, six years ago, almost exactly six years ago. Um, I played drums in a band called subtitles and, and he was just performing under the name Steve Kelly at the time. And, uh, so we met at that gig and I believe subsequently all the rest of us have come to become friends and to become acquainted since then. So it's been basically about six years since any of us have known each other. Um, and no, we have not been involved in any previous bands together up until now. Yeah. We, but we all met each other just from playing in bands in like the local, you know, New Jersey scene. Um, Steve was performing as Steve Kelly and I was playing in band subtitles at the time. And 
Tom, who's our drummer, used to play in this band called Impossible Cities, and Adrian, who's our bass player, uh, used to play in a band called The Grey Company. Um, and then also uh, we had our buddy Mark was man dancing for a couple of years. Uh, he used to play in a band called Terrible Terrible. Um, he, now he does his own solo stuff under the name Bruiser. He's not currently in man dancing anymore. His role has been filled by our friend uh, James, who we call Jamez, um, who, uh, <clears throat> again, just, you know, local local scene stuff. So I think that's the full rundown. <laughs> Now tell me what three albums mean the most to you that helped you grow as a student of music? Well, I think, okay, before I discovered the band Opeth, I feel like I had like a very rigid way of structuring songs. I almost felt like I was like trapped into like sort of traditional song structure. It was, it was crazy, like literally trapped. It was the weirdest thing. Like I felt like a verse had to be preceded by a chorus and vice versa. But when, once I discovered that band, obviously I'm sure you're well-versed in, in uh, Opeth, but listening to them really opened the doors for me to allow for like more freeform structure or just linear song structure where, you know, you like allow a, a idea or a part to sort of just develop before it transitions or moves into the next part and allow that idea to develop before you transition into the next part and not necessarily ever returning to the first part, but just keeping like a, like a theme consistent throughout. So I think definitely Opeth is, uh, is responsible for that. And I got to say specifically album wise, I think it was actually the live album, the roundhouse tapes was what really turned me on to them. So I'll, I'll, I'll cite that one. You know, maybe going and going in a little bit the other direction in terms of like traditional structure. I think uh, Jimmy World's Bleed American album. That um, definitely that's a pop record for sure. That's a verse chorus verse chorus record. But I think that that also would be in my upper echelon of uh, albums that have influenced me that way. And lastly, okay. And lastly, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna say. Um, Really, it's tough for me to pick just one album, but um, Enya. <laughs> um, I'll, if I was going to pick an album, I'd, I'd say I'll say Watermark, just in terms of like how influential and like deeply permeating that's been on me my entire life. Like my parents used to listen to Enya back in the you know late '80s, early '90s, and it's just like it just lives in my subconscious in the back of my brain. And honestly, it's like. Enya is one of my favorite recording artists of all time, possibly my favorite recording artist of all time. I celebrate her entire catalog and she, even though you wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, it's not discernible. Like if you were going to hear the music that I make or the music that I make with any of the bands that I'm in, you wouldn't think, Oh yeah, this guy definitely listens to Enya, but I gotta say definitely Enya hugely influential on me. One of my favorites. Can you tell me what was going on with you and your bandmates as you were writing The Good Sweat? Um, fair amount of frustration and disagreement. Um, we have an interesting process. We have a too many cooks in the kitchen approach to writing music. Um, originally, um, the band was founded around the songs that of Steve um, that he had already written. Um, and those songs are what became our first record, everyone else. 
Uh, and then there were a few leftovers and those became the hands on three EP. And so getting the good sweat for us was sort of like forging new territory. Uh, we had never really gone down that road before uh, in terms of like writing original compositions from the ground up together as a band in a room. And it, there was a little bit of a learning curve. It took us a while for us to find our rhythm. And I don't even know if we've necessarily found it yet, but we definitely pulled it off. You know, we're really proud of the record and like, we're really glad, uh, like, you know, other people seem to have too. The response that it got when it came out was awesome. You know, pe hearing from literally people all over the world was, was tremendous. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the, um, like where, what was the question? It was like, where, uh, where our yeah, like, space was while we were writing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I was going for. Well, um, yeah, just trying to stay positive and trying to stay goal focused and, trying not to lose hope when we you know didn't agree on anything but we we put our heads together you know and we uh put the axe to the grindstone and we did it and we're very proud of the record so now um you might have answered this one already but how do you guys typically write a new song yeah true that does that does tie into the previous question um some of the songs on the new album were essentially written at least the, the seeds of which were started started as uh in, improvisational and then and we kind of just flesh it out that way and again it's not like it's not like we're just like writing a writing a song in in a, from back to front uh in one session but at least it'll start that way um with you know improvising and then there's there's a couple songs, or at least one song on the new record. The song Glove Sweat, Steve wrote that song in its entirety. I think that might actually be the only song that was com completely written, finished, going into it. However, something like Wall Spot, okay, so Wall Spot was something that we would actually just sort of jam on almost as a sound check for live shows. Um, at least like when we were doing more basement shows, we would open many shows just by jamming on what ended up becoming wall spot, something like, okay, like then there's song a perch, which holds the distinction of being the first man dancing song that I wrote all the music to. So I have a special connection with that one. That one, I, uh, like all the progressions and the riffs and the structure, I, I brought all that to the table. Uh, and then Steve, you know, wrote all the, lyrics and melodies around that let's see something like rjw right okay so that song was very collaborative and again look probably i remember exactly how that song came to be but i'm willing to bet that it was again somewhat improvisational or steve will kind of start strumming like a simple riff and singing gibberish over it and then we just all flesh it out together so i hope that answers your question yeah, so, like, what was your last show like right before quarantine? So, our last show right before quarantine was a little bit of an odd one. It was actually a show in a hotel lobby in Asbury Park. Um, so, it was definitely not a traditional show. It wasn't even something that, like, we necessarily really promoted. It was kind of just, like, we were just paid to essentially be the entertainment at a hotel. <laughs> So it was like a kind of a random show to be like our last show that we played, you know, outside of live streams and stuff. Um, 
what what we enjoy doing as a band, even though like a lot of the songs, especially on the good sweater, like pretty fairly hard hitting. Uh, we really like to strip things down live and play as quietly as possible sometimes. And so it was, it was a, sort of one of those performances where we really like chilled it out and like played our songs really quiet. And we like to sort of like reimagine them on the spot um, and just play to the room that way. So that was our last show. Yeah. Hotel lobby show. Kind of funny. Now you released two music videos to promote your new album for coffers and wall spot. Which video did you enjoy filming more and why was that? I got to play favorites with this one because really our friends really helped us out with both. Um, I got to say filming Coffer was a lot of fun for me, especially since I got to quote unquote star in it. And I do, I love acting and I love like doing comedy and like silly shit like that. And uh, one of my oldest friends in the whole world, his production team uh, made that video for us. So that was really fun for me personally and just like really nice to collab with like an old buddy and like just have a good, good old time. Um, so if I had to pick one, I would say that one. Um, but honestly, the wall spot video was really a tremendous experience as well. And again, like all of our, all kinds of friends pitched in to help out with that, um, to make that a really, really nice experience as well. Um, I will say the only, the only like actual drawback of filming the wall video is that it was in a uh, non air conditioned uh, space in the middle of, I think it was August. It was a really hot day. So if you look at that video, we're all sweating fairly profusely and we look tired as shit. And it's just because we were extremely sweaty and tired, but all in all, it was an awesome experience making that video too. Now, what made you pick Kenlock to be the lead off song on the album? That's a good question. Um, that's funny because it was actually a little bit of a last minute change. Originally, um, the first track was going to be Hey Friends, the original title of that being Empty. But yeah, so Hey Friends was going to be track one. And then it was a little bit of a last minute change. We we just, we workshopped it. Um, honestly, like my, my girlfriend, Jess, like had, had some input on that too. And like to help us just workshop the track list a little bit and it was a last minute change. We just thought that that would be like a better, um, better opening track ultimately. Where did you sample that phrase in Perch from and what was its meaning to you? You mean the, like the uh, dialogue sample in the middle of the song? Exactly. That's, that's a great re- question too. And that's also a fun story because so there's, um, there's a line in the song that Steve wrote about um, this whole Jackie Draper things getting old, I believe is the line. I'm sorry, Steve, if I misquoted that, but anyway, so Jackie Draper is the kid from Puff the Magic Dragon. And when we got to the bridge part of the song, which is where the sample now lives, he was like tracking vocals. And I think it was like something that he had like literally just written like that morning. And so like, he was kind of still working it out. And I was like, Hey, like, are you kind of like, are you like still, still workshopping that? And he was like, yeah, a little bit. And I was like, do you mind if I try something on this next take? So what I did is on my phone, like while he's like tracking a different part of the song, I go on YouTube and I look up Puff the Magic Dragon animated, like the the cartoon from the 70s. And I like, and we're literally like, we're tracking vocals in the control room. So like you have to be like completely quiet. So I'm just quietly on YouTube looking up Puff the Magic Dragon. And I'm just like swiping my finger around and then like hold like the volume on like literally on one. So I'm like 
just holding it up to my ear to try to find a place where there's just dialogue happening. And basically what we did is I was like, I was like, all right, Steve, on this next tape, when we get to the bridge, just step away from the mic and I'm going to do something. So we got to the bridge and he stepped away from the mic and I just hold my phone up to the microphone and press play on YouTube. Granted, I don't know. I don't know what's about to happen. I don't know like what the dialogue is about to be because I couldn't hear it well enough. I just picked a, basically a random place. So I step up to the mic, I hit play on my phone and it was that like start to finish. Like that was the exact sample that just happened to play on my phone, like in that moment. <laughs> and after that happened, like we flipped out, especially Tom, Tom started screaming. He ran into the bathroom. He just had to like, he just had to like, he had to take a time out pretty much like, cause he was just wiling out. So we were just like super stoked on that. Cause it was just like, it, it was, per- it was perfect. Like you couldn't have planned it any better. And it just happened like right on the spot. I loved your song Pancakes the most. Can you tell me how that song came to be? Pancakes was one of the songs that started purely improvisationally. And actually, um, Steve, we were at rehearsal. I think uh, everyone in the band smokes cigarettes except for me. (laughs) So they always go out for a smoke. I stay inside and then they come back inside. So pretty much what happened was they went out for a smoke, came back inside. Steve picked up the guitar and essentially just started singing the song almost as it is just completely on on the spot off the top of his head and i was like yo what is that he's like i don't know i just I'm, i just made it up and i was like yo that's a hit song keep doing that so i hit um record on my phone my voice memo app on my phone and we jammed on it for a couple minutes i saved <laughs> i saved it in my phone as and dancing hit song i can actually send you send you the file if you want it's very similar to how the song ended up being in its final form um especially like lyrically melodically things like that like the the groove changed but um yeah just instantly that one kind of came came to came to life and then as with many of the other songs we spent months workshopping it and like you know adding layers and other parts and things but like the meat and potatoes of that song just Steve improvised on the spot and I have the uh voice memo of of that day. I could send it to you if you want. Definitely. Now, next album I expect a song about waffles. Mm, mm. And I think I, I don't think you're alone in that. And um I I, I I appreciate I appreciate that. And I self prefer waffles to pancakes. You know, team waffles. Definitely. Team waffles forever. What were your favorite mm-hmm. memories from playing concerts at South by Southwest? But okay, anyway, so uh man dancing at South by Southwest. Went to South by Southwest. It was South by Southwest 2019. Um, we had a couple shows. Uh, I think my favorite and prob- probably presumably all of our favorites was like this outside backyard uh, show that we played. Um, it was part of the, it was like the alternative and no earbuds showcase. That was really fun. And it was awesome to just see so many of our friends and people we've met on the road, like in this random backyard in Texas. That was the best show that we played at South by Southwest. We played a couple other showcases there. Aren't that tight though? Just in terms of like we we, we got like shafted with a time slot. I know like one one of the showcases we played like the stage was outside and then the cops came so moved everything inside and then it was like our set time got pushed back to one o'clock in the morning so we literally ended up playing for like five of our friends and like the sound guy or something. But it was still it was still fun. What's been the most valuable lesson you've learned from being a touring musician that you would tell your 16-year-old self? 
the most valuable lesson as a touring musician that I would have told my 16-year-old self. Stop trying to be so cool and just be yourself. People will like you. What is your most treasured musical possession? Hmm. As I mentioned earlier, I'm really not like such a gearhead, so I don't I don't have a ton of gear. It could be um, like albums or something like that too. I collect CDs. I collect tapes. I think my my CD and tape collection is for sure treasured. It's highly curated, mostly from thrift stores. I also have some like antique instruments that I've accumulated. I have this like really cool organ from the '70s. It's electronic. Um, I guess it's probably technically a toy, but honestly, it's just, it's really cool. Um, so I definitely, I, I treasure that, that instrument and the gold, the gold Ibanez guitar. It's, you know, trusty, all reliable. I also really, I really do like the, um, the TC electronic hall of fame reverb pedal a lot. Cool. Now, can you tell me about your favorite ghost story or urban legend from New Jersey? I always found the Clinton Road thing to be pretty captivating. And uh, I've been over that way once or twice. I never saw anything too crazy. But, you know, I've heard from friends and reliable sources that they've seen some pretty pretty weird shit go down over there. So I always thought that was pretty neat. Also, I was an avid uh, Weird, New Ge- Weird New Jersey reader, uh, at least back in the day. Uh, did, did you read that, that publication? That, yeah, that yeah. I, I know about some of the Clinton Road... Uh... Uh, adventures and misadventures that have happened there along the way too. And uh, also, and this it's not like really a ghost thing per se, but um, I thought the gates to hell is also super interesting. And if I had the balls, I would love to check it out. But honestly, like I, not, not, not because of anything supernatural or occult or anything like that, but just like, do you, do you, know, do you know about those tunnels? Like it just sounds so dangerous. No, I've heard some pretty strange things, though. I heard uh, somebody buried a dead body on Clinton Road. Yeah, I mean, I think there's all kinds of shit like that going on over there. I should check it out again. Yeah. that That's the only thing I, I know about uh, Clinton Road, really. Yeah. Yeah, I've just I've heard all kinds of tales, occult stuff and supernatural stuff. And I'm way into that. I'm, I'm way into all that. Um but I don't, I don't do like a whole lot of adventuring myself. So I should probably put my money where my mouth is. Final words. Final words. My final words. Believe in yourself. Never give up. Never surrender. Thank you, G.I. Joe. This has been an interview with man dancing guitarist Ben Petty on Sunday, January 31st, 2021 by Nick Burkell. Hell yeah.